Part One of Lorelei of the Red Mist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This story was first published in Planet Stories, Summer, 1946. Lorelei of the Red Mist by Lee Douglas Brackett and Ray Bradbury. The story recorded by Phil Chenever. Part One. The company dicks were good. They were plenty good. Hugh Stark began to think maybe this time he wasn't going to get away with it. His small stringy body hunched over the control bank, nursing the last ounce of power out of the callman. The hot night air of Venus fled past the ports in tattered veils of indigo. Stark wasn't sure where he was any more. Venus was a frontier planet, and still mostly a big X, except to the Venusians, who weren't sending out any maps. He did know that he was getting dangerously close to the mountains of white cloud. The backbone of the planet, towering far into the stratosphere, magnetic trap with God knows what beyond. Maybe even God wasn't sure. But it looked like over the mountains or out. Death under the guns of the Terro Venus Mines Incorporated Special Police, or back to the lunar cell blocks for life as an habitual felon. Stark decided he would go over. Whatever happened, he'd pulled off the biggest lone wolf caper in history. The TV Mines payroll ship for close to a million credits. He cuddled the metal strong box between his feet and grinned. It would be a long time before anybody equaled that. His mass indicators began to jitter. Vaguely a dim purple shadow in the sky ahead, the mountains of White Cloud, stood like a wall against him. Stark checked the positions of the pursuing ships. There was no way through them. He said flatly, All right, damn you and sent the callman angling up into the thick blue sky. He had no very clear memories after that. Crazy magnetic vagaries, always a hazard on Venus, made his instruments useless. He flew by the seat of his pants, and he got over, and the TV men didn't. He was free with a million credits in his kick. Far below, in the virgin darkness, he saw a sullen crimson smear on the night, as though someone had rubbed it with a bloody thumb. The callman dipped toward it. The control bank flickered with blue flame, the jet timers blew, and then there was just a screaming of air against the falling hull. Hugh Stark sat still and waited. He knew, before he opened his eyes, that he was dying. He didn't feel any pain, he didn't feel anything, but he knew just the same. Part of him was cut loose. He was still there, but not attached any more. He raised his eyelids. There was a ceiling. It was a long way off. It was black stone veined with smoky reds and ambers. He had never seen it before. His head was tilted toward the right. He let his gaze move down that way. There were dim tapestries, more of the black stone, and three tall archways giving onto a balcony. 
Beyond the balcony was a sky veiled and clouded with red mist. Under the mist, spreading away from a murky line of cliffs, was an ocean. It wasn't water, and it didn't have any waves on it, but there was nothing else to call it. It burned deep down inside itself, breathing up the red fog. Little angry bursts of flame coiled up under the flat surface, sending circles of sparks flaring out like ripples from a dropped stone. He closed his eyes and frowned and moved his head restively. There was the texture of fur against his skin. Through the cracks of his eyelids he saw that he lay on a high bed piled with silks and soft tanned pelts. His body was covered. He was rather glad he couldn't see it. It didn't matter because he wouldn't be using it any more anyway. And it hadn't been such a hell of a body to begin with. But he was used to it, and he didn't want to see it now the way he knew it would have to look. He looked along over the foot of the bed and saw the woman. She was watching him from a massive carved chair softened with a single huge white pelt like a drift of snow. She smiled and let him look. A pulse began to beat under his jaw, very feebly. She was tall and sleek and insolently curved. She wore a sort of tabard of pale gray spider silk, held to her body by a jeweled girdle, but it was just a nice piece of ornamentation. Her face was narrow, finely cut, secret, faintly amused. Her lips, her eyes, and her flowing silken hair were all the same pale cool shade of aquamarine. Her skin was white, with no hint of rose. Her shoulders, her forearms, the long flat curve of her thighs, the pale green tips of her breasts were dusted with tiny particles that glistened like powdered diamond. She sparkled softly like a fairy thing against the snowy fur, a creature of foam and moonlight and clear shallow water. Her eyes never left his, and they were not human, but he knew that they would have done things to him if he had had any feeling below the neck. He started to speak. He had no strength to move his tongue. The woman leaned forward, and as though her movement were a signal, Four men rose from the tapestried shadows by the wall. They were like her. Their eyes were pale and strange like hers. She said, in liquid high Venusian, You're dying in this body, but you will not die. You will sleep now and wake in a strange body in a strange place. Don't be afraid. My mind will be with yours. I'll guide you. Don't be afraid. I can't explain now. There isn't time. But don't be afraid. He drew back his thin lips, baring his teeth in what might have been a smile. If it was, it was wolfish and bitter like his face. The woman's eyes began to pour coolness into his skull. They were like two little rivers running through the channels of his own eyes, spreading in silver-green quiet across the tortured surface of his brain. His brain relaxed. It lay floating on the water, and then the twin streams became one broad-flowing stream, 
and his mind or ego, the thing that was intimately himself, vanished along with it. It took him a long, long time to regain consciousness. He felt as though he'd been shaken until pieces of him were scattered all over inside. Also, he had an instinctive premonition that the minute he woke up, he would be sorry he had. He took it easy, putting himself together. He remembered his name, Hugh Stark. He remembered the mining asteroid where he was born. He remembered the Luna cell blocks where he had once come near dying. There wasn't much to choose between them. He remembered his face decorating half the bulletin boards between Mercury and the belt. He remembered hearing about himself over the telecasts, stuff to frighten babies with, and he thought of himself committing his first crime, a stunted, scrawny kid of eighteen swinging a spanner on a grown man who was trying to steal his food. The rest of it came fast, then. The TV mine's job, the getaway that didn't get, the mountains of white cloud, the crash, the woman. That did it. His brain leaped shatteringly. Light, feeling, a naked sense of reality swept over him. He lay perfectly still with his eyes shut, and his mind clawed at the picture of the shining woman with sea-green hair and the sound of her voice saying, You will not die. You will wake in a strange body. Don't be afraid. He was afraid. His skin prickled and ran cold with it. His stomach knotted with it. His skin, his stomach, and yet somehow they didn't feel just right, like a new coat that hasn't shaped to you. He opened his eyes, a cautious crack. He saw a body sprawled on its side in dirty straw. The body belonged to him because he could feel the straw pricking it, and the itch of little things that crawled and ate and crawled again. It was a powerful body, rangy and flat-muscled, much bigger than his old one. It had obviously not been starved the first twenty-some years of its life. It was stark naked. Weather and violence had written history on it, wheeled white marks on leathery bronze, but nothing seemed to be missing. There was black hair on its chest and thighs and forearms, and its hands were lean and sinewy for killing. It was a human body that was something. There were so many other things it might have been that his racial snobbery couldn't call human. Like the nameless, shimmering creature who smiled with strange, pale lips. Stark shut his eyes again. He lay, the intangible self that was Hugh Stark, bellied down in the darkness of the alien shell, quiet, indrawn, waiting. Panic crept up on its soft black paws. It walked around the crouching ego and sniffed and patted and nuzzled, whining, and then struck with its raking claws. After a while it went away, empty. The lips that were now Stark's lips twitched in a thin, cruel smile. He had done six months once in the Luna solitary crypts. If a man could do that and come out sane and on his own two feet, he could stand anything. 
even this. It came to him then, rather deflatingly, that the woman and her four companions had probably softened the shock by hypnotic suggestion. His subconscious understood and accepted the change. It was only his conscious mind that was superficially scared to death. Hugh Stork cursed the woman with great thoroughness in seven languages and some odd dialects. He became healthily enraged that any dame should play around with him like that. Then he thought, What the hell? I'm alive, and it looks like I got the best of the trade-in. He opened his eyes again, secretly, on his new world. He lay at one end of a square stone hall, good-sized, with two straight lines of pillars cut from some dark Venusian wood. There were long, crude benches and tables. Fires had been burning on round brick hearths faced between the pillars. There were embers now. The smoke climbed up, tarnishing the gold and bronze of shields hung on the walls and pediments, dulling the blades of long swords, the spears, the tapestries and hides and trophies. It was very quiet in the hall. Somewhere outside of it there was fighting going on, heavy, vicious fighting. The noise of it didn't touch the silence except to make it deeper. There were two men beside Stark in the hall. They were close to him, on a low dais. One of them sat in a carved high seat, not moving, his big scarred hands flat on the table in front of him. The other crouched on the floor by his feet. His head was bent forward, so that his mop of lint-white hair hid his face and the harp between his thighs. He was a little man, a swamp-edger from his albino coloring. Stark looked back at the man in the chair. The man spoke harshly. Why doesn't she send word? The harp gave out a sudden bitter chord. That was all. Stark hardly noticed. His whole attention was drawn to the speaker. His heart began to pound. His muscles coiled and lay ready. There was a bitter taste in his mouth. He recognized it. It was hate. He had never seen the man before, but his hands twitched with the urge to kill. He was big, nearly seven feet and muscled like a draft horse. But his body, naked above a gold-bossed leather hilt, was lithe and quick as a greyhound in spite of its weight. His face was square, strong-boned, weathered and still young. It was a face that had laughed a lot once, and liked wine and pretty girls. It had forgotten those things now, except maybe the wine. It was drawn and cruel with pain, a look as of something in a cage. Stark had seen that look before, in the Luna blocks. There was a thick white scar across the man's forehead. Under it, his blue eyes were sunken and dark behind half-closed lids. The man was blind. Outside in the distance, men screamed and died. Stark had been increasingly aware of a soreness and stricture around his neck. He raised a hand, careful not to rustle the straw. His fingers found a long tangled beard, felt under it, and touched a band of metal. 
Stark's new body wore a collar like a vicious dog. There was a chain attached to the collar. Stark couldn't find any fastening. The business had been welded on for keeps. His body didn't seem to have liked it much. The neck was galled and chafed. The blood began to crawl up hot into Stark's head. He'd worn chains before. He didn't like them, especially around the neck. A door opened suddenly at the far end of the hall. Fog and red daylight spilled in across the black stone floor. A man came in. He was big, half-naked, blond, and bloody. His long blade trailed harshly on the flags. His chest was laid open to the bone, and he held the wound together with his free hand. "'Word from Beodog,' he said. "'They've driven us back into the city, but so far we're holding the gate.' No one spoke. The little man nodded his white head. The man with the slashed chest turned and went out again, closing the door. A peculiar change came over Stark at the mention of the name Beodog. He had never heard it before, but it hung in his mind like a spear-point, barbed with strange emotion. He couldn't identify the feeling, but it brushed the blind man aside. The hot, simple hatred cooled. Stark relaxed in a sort of icy quiet, deceptively calm as a sleeping cobra. He didn't question this. He waited for Beodog. The blind man struck his hands down suddenly on the table and stood up. Romna, he said, give me my sword. The little man looked at him. He had milk-blue eyes and a face like a friendly bulldog. He said, Don't be a fool, Faulon. Faulon said softly, Damn you, give me my sword. Men were dying outside the hall and not dying silently. Faulon's skin was greasy with sweat. He made a sudden, darting grab toward Romna. Romna dodged him. There were tears in his pale eyes. He said brutally, You'd only be in the way. Sit down. I can find the point, Faulon said, to fall on it. Romna's voice went up to a harsh scream. Shut up, shut up, and sit down. Faulon caught the edge of the table and bent over it. He shivered and closed his eyes, and the tears ran out hot under the lids. The bard turned away, and his harp cried out like a woman. Faulon drew a long, sighing breath. He straightened slowly, came round the carved high seat, and walked steadily toward Stark. "'You're very quiet, Conan,' he said. "'What's the matter? You ought to be happy, Conan. You ought to laugh and rattle your chain. You're going to get what you wanted. Are you sad because you haven't any mind any more to understand that with?' He stopped and felt with one sandal foot across the straw until he touched Stark's thigh. Stark lay motionless. "'Conan!' said the blind man gently, pressing Stark's belly with his foot. Conan the dog, the betrayer, the butcher, the knife in the back. Remember what you did at Falga, Conan? No, you don't remember now. I've been a little rough with you, and you don't remember any more.' 
but I remember, Conan. As long as I live in darkness, I'll remember. Romna stroked the harp-strings, and they wept, savage tears for strong men dead of treachery. Low music, distant, but not soft. Faulon began to tremble, a shallow animal twitching of the muscles. The flesh of his face was drawn, iron shaping under the hammer. Quite suddenly he went down on his knees. His hands struck Stark's shoulders, slid inward to the throat, and locked there. Outside the sound of fighting had died away. Stark moved very quickly. As though he had seen it and knew it was there, his hand swept out and gathered in the slack of the heavy chain and swung it. It started out to be a killing blow. Stark wanted with all his heart to beat Faulon's brains out. But at the last second he pulled it, slapping the big man with exquisite judgment across the back of the head. Faulon grunted and fell sideways, and by that time Romna had come up. He had dropped his harp and drawn a knife. His eyes were startled. Stark sprang up. He backed off, swinging the slack of the chain warningly. His new body moved magnificently. Outside everything was fine, but inside his psychoneural setup had exploded into civil war. He was furious with himself for not having killed Faulon. He was furious with himself for losing control enough to want to kill a man without reason. He hated Faulon. He did not hate Faulon because he didn't know him well enough. Stark's trained, calculating, unemotional brain was at grips with a tidal wave of baseless emotion. He hadn't realized it was baseless until his mental monitor, conditioned through years of bitter control, had stopped him from killing. Now he remembered the woman's voice saying, My mind will be with yours. I'll guide you. Cat's paw, huh? Just a hired hand, paid off with a new body in return for two lives. Yeah, two. This Baodog, whoever he was. Stark knew now what that cold alien emotion had been leading up to. Hold it, said Stark hoarsely. Hold everything. Cat's paw, you green-eyed she-devil. You picked the wrong guy this time. Just for a fleeting instant he saw her again, leaning forward with her hair like running water across the soft foam sparkle of her shoulders. Her sea-pale eyes were full of mocking laughter and a direct provocative admiration. Stark heard her quite plainly. You may not have any choice, Hugh Stark. They know Conan even if you don't. Besides, it's of no great importance. The end will be the same for them. It's just a matter of time. You can save your new body or not as you wish. She smiled. I'd like it if you did. It's a good body. I knew it before Conan's mind broke and left it empty. A sudden thought came to Stark. My box, the million credits. Come and get them. She was gone. Stark's mind was clear, with no alien will tramping around in it. Faulon crouched on the floor, holding his head. He said, Who spoke? 
Romna the bard stood staring. His lips moved, but no sound came out. Stark said, I spoke. Me, Hugh Stark. I'm not Conan, and I never heard of Falga, and I'll brain the first guy that comes near me. Faolan stayed motionless, his face blank, his breath sobbing in his throat. Romna began to curse, very softly, not as though he were thinking about it. Stark watched them. Down the hall the doors burst open. The heavy reddish mist coiled in with the daylight across the flags, and with them a press of bodies hot from battle bringing a smell of blood. Stark felt the heart contract in the heavy breast of the body named Conan, watching the single figure that led the pack. Romna called out, Beodog! She was tall, she was built and muscled like a lioness, and she walked with a flat-hipped arrogance, and her hair was like coiled flame. Her eyes were blue and bright, as Faolan's might have been once. She looked like Faolan. She was dressed like him in a leather kilt and sandals, her magnificent body bare above the waist. She carried a long sword slung across her back, the hilt standing above the left shoulder. She had been using it. Her skin was smeared with blood and grime. There was a long cut on her thigh and another across her flat belly, and bitter weariness lay on her like a burden in spite of her denial of it. "'We've stopped them, Faolon,' she said. "'They can't breach the gate, and we can hold Crom to Hugh as long as we have food, and the sea feeds us.' She laughed, but there was a hollow sound to it. "'Gods, I'm tired!' She halted then below the dais. Her flame-blue gaze swept across Faolon, across Romna, and rose to meet Hugh Starks, and stayed there. The pulse began to beat under Stark's jaw again, and this time his body was strong and the pulse was like a drum throbbing. Romda said, His mind has come back. There was a long, hard silence. No one in the hall moved. Then the men back of Beodog, big, brawny, kilted warriors, began to close in on the dais, talking in low, snarling undertones that rose toward a mob howl. Faolan rose up and faced them and bellowed them to quiet. "'He's mine to take. Let him alone!' Beodog sprang up onto the dais, one beautiful flowing movement. "'It isn't possible,' she said. "'His mind broke under torture. He's been a drooling idiot with barely the sense to feed himself.' And now, suddenly, you say he's normal again? Stark said, You know I'm normal. You can see it in my eyes. Yes. He didn't like the way she said that. Listen, my name is Hugh Stark. I'm an Earthman. This isn't Conan's brain comeback. This is a new deal. I got shoved into this body. What it did before I got it, I don't know, and I'm not responsible. Faolan said, he doesn't remember Folga. He doesn't remember the long ships at the bottom of the sea. Faolan laughed. Romna said quietly, He didn't kill you, though. He could have easily. Would Conan have spared you? Beodog said, Yes, if he had a better plan. Conan's mind was like a snake, 
It crawled in the dark, and you never knew where it was going to strike. Stark began to tell them how it happened, the chain swinging idly in his hand. While he was talking, he saw a face reflected in a polished shield hung on a pillar. Mostly it was just a tangled black mass of hair mounted on a frame of long, harsh, jutting bone. The mouth was sensuous, with a dark sort of laughter on it. The eyes were yellow, the cruel, brilliant yellow of a killer hawk. Stark realized with a shock that the face belonged to him. End of Part 1